0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness podcast series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of Cybersecurity Readiness, a Holistic and High-Performance Approach. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with Chief Information Security Officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and visiting professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Our discussion today will revolve around gathering and leveraging threat intelligence. Victoria Kivelovich, Director of Threat Research at Kayla Group will shed light on this subject. Kayla Group is a global leader in providing threat intelligence services. So, Victoria, welcome.
2: Hi, it's a pleasure.
1: To set the stage for our discussion, in a recent news release, Reuters reported that United States has offered a $15 million reward for information on the Conti ransomware group. The Conti ransomware group is being blamed for cyber extortion attacks worldwide. The FBI estimates that more than 1,000 victims of the Conti group have paid a total in excess of $150 million in ransomware payments. We will talk about the Conti group and more, but let's begin by providing listeners an overview of the dark web. So, Victoria, What is the dark web?
2: So technically, dark web is a part of the internet that isn't indexed by search engines and that requires some specific software configurations or other means to access it. And apart from deep web, which includes all non-indexed and non-public facing pages, for example, intranet or some paywall protected pages, uh, apart from that, dark web is intentionally hidden and it can be accessed only via the browser, which is called Tor. And dark web is often associated with illegal and cybercrime activities, and it's true. But it's important to remember that some legitimate platforms are also located in the Tone network. There are people who prefer to use such resources because of anonymity and other security reasons. But since today we are talking about protecting companies using intelligence gained from the dark web, of course, we will focus on dark web sources featuring illegal activity. Moreover, I would prefer to use the term cybercrime ecosystem, which includes not only dark web sources, but also other underground communities, which can be accessed via the surface web. And it is something that you can open from your usual browser and without any authorization. And these sources still contain illegal activities. And it is important not to miss them because they can provide valuable information too. For example, instant messaging platforms that have been seen abused by various cyber criminals for illegal activities. For example, thousands of Telegram channels that sell stolen passports, sensitive information, credit cards, and more. If you focus only on dark web sources, you can miss this information, but it can be very sensitive and important for enterprise defenders. So the cybercrime ecosystem we are talking about represents a wide variety of goods, products, and services offered by and to cybercriminals. It can be physical goods, such as drugs and guns, and it can be cyber-related stuff, for example, logins, databases, malware, tools, and more, which is usually more relevant for defenders uh, from the side of the company. So I think we can talk about that in detail a little later.
1: Sounds good. Sounds great. Yep. I appreciate you making that correction. Instead of using the word dark web, let's talk about it from the standpoint of cybercrime ecosystem. Makes a lot of sense. So Victoria, listeners on this podcast represent a variety of organizations and I'm sure they have their own threat intelligence gathering and management strategies. I think they will appreciate your insights on what are some good practices for organizations to go to these resources and leverage the intelligence that's out there so that they can proactively prevent potential attacks. What are your thoughts? What are your recommendations
2: to organizations? Sure. So first of all, I just want to highlight why it is important and what is so fascinating <laughs> about that, the great thing is that with Some enough preparation, threat intelligence analysts can access the same sources that cybercriminals have access to. And therefore, you can see how your company looks from the cybercriminals' perspective. For example, is it discussed by the cybercriminals as a potential target? What information related to the company is being leaked or traded? Is the company's resource listed as vulnerable to a specific vulnerability? Maybe there is some hacking tutorial that teaches how to abuse your company's service for customer or employees. So these are just a few examples of found in cybercrime sources. And information about all the above can be found using threat indulgence solutions that automate the process. And so they help to continuously monitor the company's assets in multiple cybercrime sources. And I believe that's the key because you can't just go in dark web once and check what's going on, what's happening regarding your company and then just leave it. You need to constantly be ahead of cybercriminals. Of course, you can also use manual investigations within the dark web. Though it can be a little time-consuming because it requires knowledge of the many relevant sources, forums, marketplaces, how to access them, foreign language capabilities, also managing numerous user accounts and aliases, having positive reputation, and so on and so on. So... Conducting investigation in the cybercrime ecosystem requires time and effort and some specialized solutions, but it will pay off with valuable information you can get. So what do we deem as valuable information? It's not only raw data, but also the context. The context. So I believe one of the important steps is trying to evaluate the information that you see in dark web, trying to connect the dots, and also to have an established process of how to pass this information to people who make decisions because this information can't just stay in your daily report. It can be the information that will be taken into account.
1: That is so true. In fact, one of the things that I have found in my research that many of the attacks have happened because the threat intelligence wasn't acted upon. In other words, the threat intelligence was received. It stayed somewhere. It didn't get to the right decision makers. So, From a procedure standpoint, from an organization structure standpoint, it's very important that organizations recognize how to manage this intelligence. Like you said, one thing is to gather the information. The other thing is to validate it, put it together in a meaningful format, and make it available in a timely manner to the decision makers so they can quickly act on it. And acting doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do something substantive. You can still make a judgment call and say, okay, it's good to know, but at this point, we want to still continue with the status quo and we will revisit this situation maybe in the next few days. So, But the important part is that you have reviewed the intelligence, you've taken a decision, and I also recommend organizations go a step further and document this process. So later on, if something were to happen, there's a fallback in this documentation where the executives can reference it and said, look, we did the due diligence. We made a decision of going a certain way for these reasons. Unfortunately, we were proven wrong, but our best interests were in place. We were, we were not acting in an irresponsible manner. So that's great insight. Moving along, you mentioned about kind of the top targets. And let's say I am representing the security team of my organization. Obviously, I would not want my organization to be a top target, but I would like to know if it is. And so I'm just curious, can you shed some light on what makes for a top target?
2: Yeah, so essentially they target any company that can bring some revenue for them, some profits. So I would say... There are different types of cybercriminals, and some of them are only attacking companies to further sell this information to other cybercriminals. So they are acting as a part of supply chain. It can be due to many reasons. For example, they aren't sophisticated enough to conduct a full-scale attack. Maybe some of them are experts in one niche. Some just prefer to have stable income and to sell what they have instead of figuring out how to monetize this data independently. For example, one actor can use phishing tactics to steal personal data, just sell them and receive his money, or he can use this data to conduct identity fraud, which will require more skills and knowledge. For example, unemployment fraud in the US requires an actor to try multiple personal information records. To find the ones that will work for this type of fraud and match the targeted state, file an unemployment claim by bias identity service, and so on and so on. So logically, the actors who conduct full-scale attacks can earn more since they're stealing money directly from affected individuals or companies or blackmailing them. So I would say that for the first type of actors, it doesn't really matter usually what is the company because all they want is just to gain something and then to sell it to other more skilled cybercriminals. But when we are talking about cyber criminals who conduct the attack till the end and they receive money from the victim, for them, it's really important to know the revenue of the company, the sector of the company, and how it can be abused. That's
1: very useful. In fact, for clarification's sake, you mentioned about a type of threat actor. I think the term might be initial access brokers, but please correct me. These are the folks who are able to compromise networks and sell credentials to other threat actors, such as ransomware operators. Am I correct in using that term, initial access brokers?
2: Yes, that's totally correct.
1: Okay. So again, from an organization standpoint that is trying to protect themselves from getting hurt, from getting attacked, how is the relationship between the initial access brokers and, say, the ransomware attackers? How is that significant?
2: So it's very significant because initial access brokers play a crucial role in the ransomware economy and especially in the ransomware as a service economy, which is a model that enables cyber criminals, also known as affiliates, to use ransomware to execute attacks and get share of ransom if the company pays the ransom in the end. So as you've mentioned, initial access brokers sell remote access to a computer in a compromised organization, which is called initial network access. How does it work? First, the broker needs to find an initial infection vector, for example, compromise RDP or VPN. Then he needs to research an organization, if it's worth the effort, if it's even a company, if it's big enough, if it's interesting. And then he needs to transform it into a wider compromise, for example, achieve higher privileges. And then all he needs is to supply access to a buyer, for example, in the form of RDP credentials. So if this buyer is related to a ransomware operation, he can use it to enter the network, move laterally, and deploy ransomware in all the environment. And initial access phase is already taken care by initial access broker, and it really significantly eases the process and scales the attacks. So, of course, ransomware operators have other ways of getting access. They rely on phishing campaigns, botnets, and more. And likewise, initial access brokers can sell network access to any actor, not only to ransomware actors. They can sell it to financially motivated APTs, which are advanced, persistent threat actors, usually state-backed. They can sell it uh, to data brokers and any threat actor that has a way to monetize said access. But as we've seen Initial access brokers and ransomware actors have an established corporation. And that is why essential initial access brokers are an essential part of supply chain for many ransomware operations. That's why it's important to take the offers.
1: Wow, that is so interesting and enlightening. You touched upon the profile of, of top targets. If we get more specific and think in terms of ransomware attacks, what is the profile of an ideal ransomware target? Is it different from top targets of initial access brokers?
2: Yeah, that's a great question because really it is a little different. So, for initial access brokers, they usually list some properties of a compromised company, which help other threat actors to understand if this victim is valuable. These proprietors can include revenue, size, which is number of employees, industry, and description of the company. And usually, the bigger the revenue, the more the access costs. But for initial access brokers, it's important only to sell the access. So they do not need to pay a lot of attention to countries and sectors. Essentially, every company that is vulnerable is good for them because they will find a buyer most likely. If, if it's not a ransomware attack, then another side criminal. We see that initial access brokers offer a lot of access to universities, but they tend to cost less. And we also seen ransomware actors discussing that universities, especially not the major ones, do not tend to pay ransom. So that's one difference. The same about healthcare institutions. When the pandemic started, some ransomware actors said they will not attack medical institutions, but it didn't stop initial access brokers from offering them for sale. So ransomware actors are more focused. And uh, based on the conditions that they state on various cybercrime forums, we found that an ideal victim, ransomware victim, is based in the US. It has more than $60 million in revenue. And most likely, it's not from education, government and non-profit sector, because it's just not valuable for them. These victims won't pay money, most likely. And we also seen a confirmation of that by a representative of the Logbit ransomware operation. He said that the insurance in the ransomware sphere is more developed in the US and Europe, And the largest number of the world's wealthiest companies is concentrated there. So he explained why they're targeting mostly these countries. Interestingly, the actors define not only the desired revenue and country, but also type of access. And it can be very beneficial for enterprise defenders. So first of all, you can understand if your company is a potential target. But I know it sounds too wide because essentially any medium-sized or big profitable company is a target. So what is more interesting is the type of access, which sheds light at some TTPs of ransomware attackers. As desired type of access, they state RDP and VPN, and it should trigger enterprise defenders to pay more attention to these solutions and securing them. For example, enabling uh, two-factor authentication for VPN connections. Also, the actors name specific products they are targeting to ease their attacks some names that we've seen, Citrix, Fortinet, Cisco, Pulse Secure, VPNs, and other solutions are among them. And when seeing these requirements, an defender can identify the threat more correctly and pay attention if these products are used in the environment and if they should pay more attention to patching them and securing them. And what is the most interesting, that When studying initial access brokers and ransomware attackers, we can understand specific vulnerabilities used by actors. For example, we've seen one actor sharing his entire process of getting into the network. And he mentioned the use of an automated script, a program, which weaponizes one of the vulnerabilities in Pulse Connect secure VPNs. And if not patched, this flow can be used by different actors to attack the network and perform separate attacks. And it can be not only one actor. If someone attacked you using one flow, now the actor can also find this and use it for the separate attack. So you can become a double victim, as as we name it.
1: Very interesting. Now, as you talk about ransomware attackers and victims, my thought goes to organizations that are often double victims. And my research finds that these are the organizations who have paid once, and so there is the intelligence out there that they'll probably pay again. That's one way of thinking about double victims. Another way of thinking about double victims is the attackers, the ransomware attackers these days, they not only steal your data and encrypt your network, your systems, but they're also selling the data. So even if you regain access to your network, that is not a guarantee that your data is not already, out there in one of the dark web resources being sold to some other threat actor. So what advice do you have for organizations from the standpoint of avoiding becoming double victims?
2: So I would say that the most important point is to properly investigate the incidents because a company can become a double victim if different actors use one entry vector. That wasn't secured after the first attack. So proper investigation and acting using the results of the investigation is is essential. And of course, the company should have some established practices. For example, cybersecurity awareness and training for all K stakeholders and employees. All K individuals should know how to safely use their credentials and personal information online. Also, there should be, of course, an established process of vulnerability monitoring and patching because you should continually protect all the network infrastructure and prevent any unauthorized access, either initial access brokers or other cyber criminals. And, uh, of course, I think that automated and targeted monitoring of key assets in cybercrime ecosystem can help to immediately detect threats emerging from the ecosystem. I just want maybe to show an example of two attacks that started in dark web and then evolved into a full-scale attack. For example, in June 2021, the hack of Electronic Arts, a video game company, it began with hackers who purchased stolen cookies sold online for just $10 on Genesis Market, which is a market of information stolen via information-stealing malware. So, cookie is something that can save the login details of particular users and potentially let hackers to log into services as that person. And this is what these specific hackers did. They use these credentials to gain access to Slack channel used in electronic arts. Once in the Slack channel, they tricked one of their employees to provide a multi-factor authentication token. They just messaged IT support members and they said that they lost their phone at the party and that's why they need another authentication token. And once they received this token, they logged into, into a corporate network and then they found the service for developers that they use to compile games. And then they just stole game source code, which is of course very valuable for the video gaming company. And they said they had almost 800 gigabytes of data and they were advertising it for sale on various underground forums. So if this cookie wasn't bought from the same underground forums, maybe this attack wouldn't happen. And of course, as we were talking about initial access brokers and ransomware attacks, we've also seen a lot of examples of an attack that started from network access and continued into full-scale ransom attack. From what we've seen One of the examples is very interesting because it was confirmed by the company's investigation. We saw the initial access broker offering data, offering initial network access to the company. We we identified as Jiro data. It's a US-based energy company. He offered the access on January 16th. Two days later, the actor declared the access was sold. And one month later, on February 20th, the operators of DarkSide ransomware published a blog post claiming to have compromised the same company. So logically we assumed it's one attack. And then we saw the GiroData's investigation and it confirmed our findings because they said that the unauthorized actor gained access to certain systems and related data within the company's environment from approximately January 16 to February 22. So this is the same timeline. And we've seen a lot of examples Uh, We have identified at least five ransom operations, most of them managed by Russian-speaking actors who are buying accesses from initial access brokers and using this access in their tax. For example, Logbit, Avadon, DarkSide, Conti, and BlackBite. So you can ask me, why is it even valuable? Why should we follow this, this information? Because as we've seen from the moment the access is listed on sale, it takes on average, one month to attack the company to try to have negotiations and then to publish its name on a ransomware block if the negotiations fail. So it means that a network access victim has a few days or even weeks to understand that it's compromised and to secure the access to find this unauthorized access and to prevent the future attack.
1: Very interesting. Thank you for providing us with these great examples. Now, let me present you with a scenario. An attacker approaches an organization and they say that they have the organization's data. And obviously they're asking for money. What kinds of checks should the organization engage in to verify if the threat is a real one?
2: It's an excellent question because we do see a lot of actors that try to pretend they are skilled actors, but in reality they are just some beginners that are trying to gain easy profits. Interesting. So it is really important to first understand context and second, ask for proof. For example, someone approaches you and says your vendor was attacked and your data was stolen. So there is a lot of factors that just prey on data breaches that already, that already happened and they can use them to intimidate you and ask for ransom without having any data. So in this case, it is important to understand if such email is even in TTPs of a specific group. Do they really inform clients of an attacked company about the breach? So we had such case with a club ransomware and we confirmed that this is a genuine email, that they really send emails to all the vendors, partners, and clients to intimidate the company. But easily it could be another ransomware gang that doesn't have it in these TTPs. And then you need to go further. What do I mean by going further is to understand what proof do you have? because I have an excellent example with Conti that you mentioned, the mm-hmm. ransom operation, which made a lot of headlines. We have visibility into their TTPs thanks to a recent leak of their internal information. So as a response to the Conti ransomware gang support of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I suspect that Ukrainian researchers just leaked internal conversations of its members, and it gave us a lot of valuable information. For example, we found that County respected big operation frequently lies to victims about the stolen data. They insist they have more than was actually stolen. We've seen an example that they discussed some company from Canada and one of the workers complained to a high profile member of Conti that he could not find files requested by the victim. And he claimed that the team that was attacking the network didn't download all the files from the file tree. So they demonstrated this file tree to the victim. And it was a huge file tree. And the victim, of course, was persuaded that they have a lot of data, but it wasn't true. It was another example we've seen. The same actor said that only eight gigabytes of data were stolen from the network. Of course, in negotiations, they said it was a lot more. And in the end, this victim paid ransom and it was over $1 million. So over $1 million for eight gigabytes of files. And they didn't know it. And as you've said, the ransomware actors usually say that, of course, after receiving the money, we will delete all the information that we have. So what they did, they didn't send any any proof after being paid. They just said that we deleted all the data, all the logs, and that's it. So the proof is a very important second step after trying to understand what's the context, what is the background of the attacker, If you have an opportunity to interact with the attacker, you need to ask for proofs. First of all, these proofs can help you to understand what data was taken and if if it even was taken. And second, maybe it will give you some insights about what tools were used to compromise your network, maybe what specific software was compromised. Because when the actor sends proof, he can accidentally leave some information that will lead you to securing your environment and ending the unauthorized access that the attackers have.
1: Very insightful. Thank you again. This is very, very useful information that I know many organizations can benefit from. So, you talked about the Conti or the Conti group. I'm sure there are many players out there, and you are the, the expert in this area. Is it important that organizations make a concerted, focused effort? to learn about each of these groups, because I see this as a never ending proposition because these groups are are evolving, they're appearing, maybe some disappear. It almost seems that an organization needs to have a team that solely focuses on monitoring this ecosystem, monitoring these new players, the existing players. That's a lot of activity. What are your thoughts? What what is your advice? How best to try and get your hands around all that's going on in, as you call it, the cybercrime ecosystem?
2: So, of course, each company should have a team that is focused on securing the company's assets. Of course, studying the ecosystem is another step which provides a lot of valuable information. But I understand that some companies doesn't have resources for that. So there is a lot of companies that published open source, open researches that you can access. And this is something that you need to follow because as you've said, the groups are appearing, disappearing, and maybe the name is not important so much for enterprise defenders, but TTPs and what tools they're using, that is really important. And as I mentioned with Leak, sometimes it happens that accidentally or thanks to efforts of researchers, we get our hands on information that can be very valuable. And that is, if we're speaking, for example, about ransomware servers, is a flow of the operations because they have a lot of people in the team. Of course, it raises so-called insider threat. Something happens, affiliate is not happy with the conditions that he got, and he can just reveal all the manuals of the ransom operation on one of the forums. And that is why Following on this news is very important because you can just receive a tutorial how a ransomware attacker could breach into your network from the beginning, what tools he can use, even what infrastructure. Because we spoke a lot about Conti, I cannot not to mention that they allegedly shut down the operations and they were granted to smaller units. So we can expect a lot of new gangs using these old methods. And of course, they can also use new methods because... Even among different teams in one ransomware groups, these TTPs may differ. So it's crucial to track it since they can use both new methods and all successful tricks, which includes infrastructure, which includes supply chain, the same initial access brokers that we've seen being used by Conti in these internal leaks. They've said they found them on forums. They were actually exchanging messages like, Hey, I've seen this guy on the forum. I think we should work with him. So It means that new groups can also leverage the same initial access brokers. And even if attackers try to hide their identity and not to contact the sellers directly, for example, we can still see these suppliers in cybercrime sources. And we can still evaluate how a specific company looks in the eyes of attackers and what he can use to attack it. So... Unlucky for us, the cybercrime ecosystem will unlikely disappear. But luckily for us, we can have almost the same visibility into these threats as potential attackers.
1: That is so true. And as you you were discussing so many different topics in the context of how to leverage the intelligence from these dark groups, if I may. If I had to summarize some of my takeaways from this discussion, first and foremost... Organizations can't afford to ignore these very valuable resources. As we have discussed previously during our planning meetings, it may not be easy for organizations to gain access to these resources. So they may have to deploy intermediaries who can gain access on their behalf and keep them posted on a regular basis on all kinds of intelligence, whether that organization is a target or not. What are the types of attacks? that they should be prepared for. So it's a constant exercise that a company needs to engage in. They need to have the right teams in place who are monitoring the intelligence, who are sharing, reporting the intelligence. And there are also people in place who are reviewing it and responding to the intelligence as soon as possible. Because you can gather all the intelligence in the world, but if you don't act on it, then what's the point? Which is unfortunately, the case in many, many organizations. It happens quite a lot. So this is a lot of great information, Victoria. Really enjoyed this conversation. But I'd like to give you uh, the final opportunity to conclude with some, some final thoughts, some final takeaways for the audience.
2: Yeah, so all that you said is totally great summarizing what I've been telling about. I would like just to add that, as you mentioned, it is really important to document all the all the investigations and threat intelligence, and I would also say it's really important to filter the noise because there is a lot of threats that seem to be threats, but in the end, you understand that it's not so- that it's not something that is dangerous for your organization. And if you document it, maybe the next time you don't need to dedicate all this time and effort on the second time to try to understand if it's something dangerous. And summarizing why why the cybercrime ecosystem is so important. It's because nowadays a typical cybercriminal does not work on his own. Even the most basic criminal business requires different tools, services, and all of them are available for purchase on the cybercrime forums. Also, the cybercrime ecosystem shifted towards something we call everything as a service model, meaning instead of just purchasing tools and then conducting attacks, any threat actor can employ any number of services to receive needed information. For example, if a throw a doctor in to conduct some form of identity fraud, meaning to impersonate a person to receive profits, they can easily purchase personal information, protected health information, and identification documents instead of trying to receive it by themselves. So such automatizations has two primary consequences. Firstly, it lowers the level of sophistication and technical knowledge required by a typical cybercriminal which, of course, raises a number of attacks. And secondly, it resulted in hundreds of organized cyber criminal groups which specialize and provide services to other cybercriminals. So this is the whole ecosystem that you can find anything in it and most likely you will find something connected to a company. And then it is up to you and this is your next step to build a proper process of reacting to this raw data and turning it into threat intelligence, into actionable threat intelligence can be used to secure your organization.
1: Thank you so much, Victoria. It has been such a pleasure.
2: Pleasure for me too. Thank you.
1: A special thanks to Victoria Krivilevic for her time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening And I'll see you in the next episode.
0: The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis, with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.